I wear a camera all the time in all my cases and everybody can watch exactly what I'm doing as if they are scrubbed and seeing the operation. Yeah. That helps in teaching, education, helps the surgeon themselves also after the surgery. I watch these videos after I am done. So I know I should have done it this way. I should have mm. not spent time on this. And I think every surgeon should do that, especially yeah. if you're doing more complex stuff, because that's how you evolve as a surgeon. Mm. You learn it from your mistakes. And welcome to the Pursuit of Health podcast, where we believe that healthcare belongs to everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Vecchi, a practicing pediatric cardiologist and educator. Together, we will explore the many facets of our unique American healthcare system, its strengths, its weaknesses, and what can be done to ensure that it meets its full potential to improve our lives. On each episode, we'll invite a special guest to help us on our journey. We'll learn about the various healthcare settings that these experts come from and the remarkable work they're doing to transform America's health. We'll take the best of what they have to offer so we can all reach for a better healthcare together. So join me now in our pursuit of health. Welcome everyone to the Pursuit of Health podcast. On this episode, I sit down with a really heartening colleague of mine. And I say that because he is a heart surgeon for children and talk about his own journey into his field and the background behind the field itself and what led him to enter it, pursue it, and hopefully contribute to it in the future and the implications of his work and the work of those before him for healthcare in general. So please sit down and join me with Dr. Sami Syed of the Pediatric Congenital and Heart Surgery Program at Westchester Medical Center. Well, welcome everyone back to the Pursuit of Health podcast. This year has been, I think, particularly exciting. We've slowed down a little bit the pace of the shows and the intervals between the sessions have gotten longer, but I think the topics and the discussions are definitely getting more intense and involved. And I really like the feedback from the audience and people who have been listening, asking questions and hopefully steering us in directions that are relevant to our listeners. Today, I have, again, the honor of sitting down with someone who I've recently begun to work with. And in my field of pediatric cardiology, Dr. Syed, Dr. Sami Syed, now working at the Westchester Medical Center, who is both a pediatric and adult cardiothoracic and general heart surgeon. And of course, this is close to my own heart in this field, but there's so much of a legacy about his field, about our field and how they come together that I think is relevant to the themes of our podcast and the ideas of what are some of the issues that we're all facing in healthcare. And I think if we step back every once in a while, look back where we've come, and then to see where we're going, I think that's one of the best ways to kind of focus where we may be heading off the path and should get back on and kind of look back to those who led the way, those who are now in the middle of this, and asking them, like Dr. Syed, where do you think we should be going? And these are some of the things I wanted to talk about. 
Welcome, Dr. Syed. It's, it's really a pleasure to sit down and continue some of our outside conversations together. Thank you, Eric, for having me. And it's a pleasure always to talk to you and be on the podcast. Oh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And, and it's something that I think has grown legs of its own. And it's really something that I think stimulates a lot of discussions. And I'm sure this discussion will too. I'm always interested, I think the audience is always interested in who is that we're talking to, telling us a little about their own story as they get in here. If we're building legacies, of course, people don't want to admit this, but our guests are part of the legacy and they, we don't see it some ways at that time. Perhaps our students do or others, but we're building our own legacy and part of a legacy before us. So I want to learn a bit about your legacy. And I understand that your background takes you again across the Atlantic into the continent of Africa and Egypt from where you're from and some of the wonderful education background that you've had. I'd really love to hear about that. So why at some point in your life and when did you say, yeah, medicine, that's what I want to do? <laughs> Thank you. I don't know if it's a legacy yet, but I'm working on it. You know, I was graduated from Alexandria Medical School and I grew up in Egypt. So my life was there and I always interested in medicine since high school and mm. yeah. Uh, really, when I went into medical school, I started thinking about cardiology or surgery. And then as you get closer to the end of your medical school and start doing the rotations with other subspecialities, you say, this is it. This right. is what I want to be. So, Was there a mentor or somebody at some point that kind of helped you solidify that choice? Uh, absolutely. There are a lot of great mentors you come across and you like the way they teach, they like the way they operate, you know, start seeing them and came across a lot of uh, great minds in the past. And this is really what directed me towards surgery and mm. in particular cardiac surgery. And the first time you go into the operating room and see the heart lung machine and you feel like you're in a spaceship, it's mm. like, what is going on there? You know, and the language that people communicate with in the operating room, then you don't realize at some point you can be part of this, which was the great part of this career. And then once you see the heart through a stimnotomy in the beginning and say, wow, this is what and I And for want our guests, that's when the chest is open and you're <laughs> looking at the heart. And again, some people would say, hey, that's not for me. Obviously for you, you mm. went the other way and goes, this is fascinating. It, right? it is indeed. And then you start reading and you get more knowledge about it and you're becoming interested more and more every, every mm. time as you go through your internship. And I did my initial residency in cardiothoracic surgery in Alexandria University. And I think we should let the people know, we may not know about Alexandria. I had the pleasure with my family of going to Egypt and actually visiting, if not the oldest library in the world, existing standing library, one of the oldest. Literally, Cleopatra was across the way, her <laughs> palace, so to speak. Yeah. And there's just the idea of the concept of that academic environment, learning, that legacy of thousands of years of learning and knowledge Absolutely. that just translates it must have been part of the woodwork of that institution in some ways yeah it is it is in so much history there yeah. uh, you know and as you go through the training mm. you become more involved deeply in in that cardiothoracic speciality really interesting i want to continue this mm. yeah, so after i graduated and finished my residency there it was about 2000 and then i started my initial job there as a junior staff and we start seeing a lot of pathology a lot of congenital heart defects and this is really interesting how it's different than adult cardiac surgery so you're already doing congenital heart work in egypt even before you came to the united states yes right yeah 
Yeah, and obviously you want to learn more and you want to see the new technology and that's at the time where everybody wants to travel, you know, abroad to learn something new. Right. And this is where I start studying for the United States medical licensing exams and taking the steps. And by the time I was finishing my residency, I was pretty much ready to come and see the opportunities here. And I think it's interesting to see in the field because my sense of some of the best surgeons that I've worked with and know about in this country I don't know the exact numbers and percentages, but a lot of the surgeons, the heart surgeons for children, have come from abroad to the United uh, States. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and that's the legacy in some ways of that. Even some of the first people whose names are forever stamped on certain heart surgery procedures hmm. are from abroad. Absolutely. And this continues. I, I think, uh, you know, we see a lot of pathologies in our countries. We see a lot of older kids that are uh, not being treated, different interesting pathology, huge volume, and you don't know what to do sometimes. And this is obviously with years back where the technology and the ability to know what's the exact uh, diagnosis. We were in an era where it's not unusual that you take a patient to the operating room and open the chest and find out something different than hmm. what the echo was because of the experience. And, and that's what pushed all of us to seek more education and more learning. And differences now when you're talking now and say, this almost should not happen because now we have the ability to actually do the operation before we go into the operating room. Yeah. And yeah. we'll talk about that later on in the conversation, the idea of how technology has changed how we approach it. But there is something to being able to kind of fly in the face of any situation. Sometimes that when you don't have all that information up front and you say, okay, I can deal with what's coming to me. That's a skill set of its own, right? Yeah, it is. And, you know, you grow up in an environment where there's a lot of challenges and you overcome these challenges and you learn to be persistent and to seek more knowledge and education. And that's part of the success. So when you come here and you find the environment very rich with information, mm. technology, education, everything so easy to find that makes a huge difference. You, you already have the potentials. You Is just, that what you were looking for when you said, listen, I'm going to the United States, I'm going to go continue this journey in the United States. Is that what you were looking for? Is not only what was the difference in advancement, but what did that mean to be more advanced? I want to serve the patient better. We're talking about over 20 years ago in Egypt where things were different. Mm. Outcomes were not as good as now. It was not unusual to have a tetralogy fellow who passed away in the hospital before surgery or even after patients were sitting in the hospital for months, sometimes waiting for somebody to operate. Whereas at the same time in the United States, that would be much less likely at that same time. Exactly. In Egypt, it was more likely. Now, as you kind of alluded to, it's gotten better in Egypt. That's changed. It's and changed. it doesn't just change by chance. No, there are no. people working to make that change, going back and forth between countries and learning and teaching and all the stuff that we're talking uh, uh, about. Absolutely. There are centers now in Egypt where they do excellent, complicated procedures, more than centers in the United States, right. with outcomes even better in some places. So that speaks about the people who went, trained, returned back, and they start serving the country. Right, which yeah. makes everyone healthier, but it also just shows the scope of this field in particular, as many other fields, but how international it is in so many ways. And that how we're, if we're focused on the best for the patient, that exchange uh, across uh, nations uh, and boundaries is, is 
the key. To uh, this. Absolutely. And, and that's what pushes all of us, not only me, a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my senior colleagues, my junior, they were all thinking the same. We, mm. we want a, a better opportunity. We want to travel, we want to learn and come back and be able to do something good for our patients. Yeah. So that was the main idea behind that. And, and then uh, what happened? Then you <laughs> come into Minnesota, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, you know, I interviewed in several places. This was by the year of 2004. And then I got an opportunity uh, in 2005 to join Mayo Clinic as a fellow, mm. what we call non-accredited fellowship because I didn't have any residency here. So my goal was to spend a year or two here, move to another place, another year or two, and then go back home mm. to be able to apply what I learned. Yeah, absorb the knowledge. Yeah. Yes, but that totally changed. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that. So you stayed at the Mayo and then University of Minnesota and... Yeah, so Mayo was along several years, was from 2005 till 14. And then I went to Stanford where I did my congenital fellowship in Lucille Packard Children. In California, wonderful place, in, right? In California, great place, working with two of the big senior surgeons and best surgeons in the country. Mm. And so you learn more and, you know, a very busy practice. And after that, we turned back to Mayo where I was practicing both pediatric and adults for about three and a half years and then moved to the University of Minnesota. At this point, it's no longer an unofficial fellowship. This is now your... Yeah, so I I went, yeah, I I forgot to say. So moving from the fellowship, there was a time where, and that may be also good for the new generations, is like, there is a time where you're hesitant about changing your pathway Mm. because you're balancing between the pros and cons. So one of the challenges, like you're already a cardiac surgeon, you're trained, you've now better trained, you can practice after this couple of years very well because of how much you learned and how much volume you've seen. In and that you could place. go back to Egypt and actually be quite impressive in terms of, look, I'm coming back. I'm a very different person now. They could have done that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I was interested to do congenital mm-hmm. and pediatric. And I think a pediatric has its own challenges because they require a little bit more training. And as a non-accredited fellow, in my mind, I say you're outside the system means in order to be really practicing independently and have freedom and learn more, you want to be accredited means you be able to sit for the board, you be able to go through the rigorous training that's required from everybody. And you have an exam, you have to pass all this, but a lot of stress, that structure of the training, I did not have back home. It was totally different. But in order to do that training, you have to go through general surgery which is something I've never done before. I went from internship to cardiothoracic right away. But in order to do general surgery, you need to do five years before that. So here in the United States. Yes. Will I waste five years of my time and start all over instead of just keep going as a cardiac surgeon? So that took a year to make that decision. Mm, Sure. (laughs) A lot of discussions at home and yeah. Yes, because you don't know. You feel like at some point this can be better but what if you go through this route and you can't go back to cardiac or you can't go back to congenital? So there was a lot of risks in this, but you have to make a decision. You have to take some risks. And actually that was the best decision I've made. And obviously I had a lot of help from many people and many mentors at this time and went through a general surgery, then cardiac, and then was able to get into the congenital. 
And then now I'm both certified in general surgery, I'm both certified in thoracic surgery, mm. and now I'm both certified in congenital surgery. So everything work, is, everybody. Yeah. Is, is going in the right track. Then now we started practicing independently. This has some other level of challenges. And then you go through this. Now you gain more experience over the years. And now I came to New York in July last year to start a program at uh, Maria Ferrari Worcester Medical Center. And uh, here you go. Here we go. And that's where we <laughs> got to meet. And we're fortunate that that yeah. absolutely happened. And that journey took you there. And I think as you go through this and you make these decisions in your life and these, as we say, the forks in the road that Robert Frost talks about, and I take that fork, obviously it is with people behind you, you're standing on the shoulders of those behind you and the whole field and the whole process of healthcare and medical education is that way. So why is it important in your field that we understand what is that legacy in pediatric heart surgery? Tell us a little bit about that and, and why it is applicable to medicine in general. We're standing on the basically shoulders of giants in this field, and it's not that old of a story. But I think it would be important from a heart surgeon if you could share a little bit of that legacy of pediatric heart surgery in general in the world. What is that legacy? This is a great question and also difficult question to, yeah. to answer, but cardiac surgery in general is not that old of a field. Right. But the progress that happened over the years in cardiac surgery is so tremendous, especially in the last decade, that you hear now about heart surgery as routine. Right. And everybody's expecting there will be no problem. This even harder in pediatric cardiac surgery because we reach it to the point where everything is expected to be excellent. And to achieve this excellence wouldn't have been possible without the pioneering work of all the people in the past and right. all the pioneers who built that field. Right. They had their challenges, but they were very persistent to keep going. This is what built that legacy. And you go back to the history of pediatric cardiac surgery, which has started actually the history of cardiac surgery by Alfred Blalock, Helen Tossig, and Vivian Thomas when this was 1944. Mm. So it was about, you know, you know 79 years. We're in the middle of World War II. Yeah, 79 years ago. Yeah. And they were trying some weird new stuff to be able to help the patient. So they had a problem and they tried to address it. And it's important if everybody realizes, we've mentioned this in the past, this wasn't just children's heart surgery. This was the field of heart surgery began yes. here. Yeah, there wasn't anything before that. Right. We're very old history about repairing some wounds in the heart and not touching the heart and all the stories that everybody know. But this was the start really of dealing with congenital heart defect with blue babies, as they called at that time because of the cyanosis. And guess what? It worked mm. and it worked in other patients and so on. And that opened the field. And then in the same time, there are people who are thinking we cannot operate on the heart because we need a heart-lung machine. We need something to be able mm. to support the patient. So you have John Gibbon who's building this and you have others who are working on some other crazy ideas. You know, there's a lot of terms flying around here. And for the medical people, even, I think it's, wow, what is all this stuff? But you're basically dealing with children whose hearts are born malformed but the components of the heart are basically still there. You just have to be put back in order. Yes. To some degree, you know, yeah. from the Rubik's Cube mentality or something, <laughs> you have to just move things around and you can do that. We're not even talking about rebuilding parts of the heart that aren't there yet. That's the next phase of things. Mm. But we're saying we've got a heart, it's got all its components, but I just got to 
put it back to where it was supposed to be. That's the first phase of this. And in order to do this, you had some really creative out-of-the-box thinking that had to happen. Uh, absolutely. And that's what part of the beauty of pediatric cardiac surgery and congenital in general is you have problems all the time and yeah. you have challenges and you have to think about it. And that's what creates the difference between one person and another or certain group and another group. And that's what solves the problem maybe mm. for many other patients. So it's very important. And all the stories in the past was built on that. Now, we have to say that in the past, there was a little bit of room for error. There were many untreated pathologies. People were not as critical as now about outcomes and things like that. So we cannot do what was done in the past that easily these days. Right. You have to go through an IRP, you have to go to, through FDA. I think we would be here if that was the process back then. No, absolutely not. Yeah. And then all of them, they failed at some point and even more than once, but they kept going. Mm. Now, if you have a surgeon who has one or two mortalities, he may not be working after that if it's in a row. Today. Uh, today. Yeah. You know. But back then that was routine. <laughs> yes. So I always remember that story of William Mustard because the first arterial switches the, he did, he did switch them and he switched one coronary, not two. And all seven patients died. Can you imagine if you as a surgeon now, you kill the first six or seven patients, you'll be out of the job. Forget. Yeah, today that would not fly. You'd probably meet the president of the hospital and say, it's been nice, good <laughs> luck, and here's your bags. Yeah. But I remember the days even at Columbia where as a resident and then a fellow, I would actually go into the operating room because I was also fascinated by it from the medical side and watch when a particular heart problem known as hypoplastic left heart where one side of the heart did not develop at all, the most important side, many would say the left side of the heart, and they were trying and trying to do what had been done in some other institutions down in Philadelphia. And I saw the surgeons at Columbia struggling with this. And I would say that out of 10 kids, we would have two that would make it. And I remember learning to sit on my knees with the surgeon in prayer at the end of the case. Everybody else was gone. I knocked on the door by mistake. And he said, if you want to come down and say a prayer with me, you can come in. Otherwise, stay out. And I remember the surgeon saying that, and that brought me really a good sense of not just the physical, what the emotional challenge was at that time of Absolutely. dealing with this, yet they persisted. And that's what changed everything. Yeah. And generated all these operations that pretty much address every problem in the heart now. Part of this legacy is now you see these operations done in neonates and infants and you see them growing over mm. the years and you see the changes that you made, not just as one person, but the whole team made on this child and the whole family all through right. their life. That that's it in itself is very important motivator to us to keep going. Right. And I think that to put you in the context, I know our guests don't like to think of themselves as perhaps part of a history or a story, but you're at that turning point where we talk about this legacy from one country to the next and they share and you grow and you watch the history and we watch this evolve in our careers. And now we're at a turning point where we can do so much and the team of people that are involved in doing this have grown. The number of people that are involved in this, cardiologists and anesthesiologists, nurses, all those things. Absolutely. But as you do this, my question that I always wondered about is, what happens if we forget and we get content with where we are and forget the lessons of the legacy of those that took us to where we are? 
And what does that mean today and for tomorrow? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we should be also working in parallel to what happened in the past and trying to build for the next generations. So what we do these days, while we're not developing new operations in particular, and it's very limited compared to the past, but we're modifying a lot of things. We're developing new ways of doing the surgeries. Right. We're techniques, transcatheters, all these things that will definitely have impact on the future, whether the future of the patients or who is coming next to deal with these problems. Mm. So yeah. I think we that also put responsibility on us not to do the easy part sometimes for the patient now, because down the road, this could be a very complicated problem for who is coming to deal with it. That's a very important point. I think in your field, it's critical, but I think it's important to think of that in healthcare in general. If I just do the bare minimum and get by today because it's safe, or I've got all these other restrictions that are making it hard for me to do more than I maybe want to do, and if I just accept that, I'm not actually leaving a problem today or not doing a full job. I have to think, particularly in a field like pediatric congenital heart surgery, where you are, now you're saying, I can think 40, 50, 60 years, a full lifetime in advance. I couldn't do that before. By definition, I have to think that way. What I do today matters for tomorrow so much that the decisions I make have to think about not where I am at this moment, but where that patient and their caretakers and the field itself are going to be. I got to think like that. That's a very forward way of thinking. And I don't think it's common as much as it should be. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, many places, many surgeons, many cardiologists will think about something to get by now or manage this now. Yes, that's sometimes necessary in very particular situations, but in the majority of scenarios, we have to do something that lasts as long as can be. And, mm. and this is the big difference between pediatric and adult cardiac surgery. Mm. In pediatric cardiac surgery, you think about the growth of the child, you think about the quality of life more. You know, it should be in general for both, but I think when we're dealing with infants, neonates and... The time frame is so much bigger. Exactly. And you will see the results most of the time. You see the results of what you did a few years back, a few years later or down the road. I always tell the parents when I meet them in the clinic, the decision is easy right now, but I'm not thinking about this operation. I think your child will do well with the surgery. The outcomes are excellent. But I'm thinking about 10 or 15 or 20 years from now, what's going to happen if we do this? And that sometimes can change that decision completely. On what you do now. And I think I've seen you make that decision and kind of diverge from other suggestions about how to approach a patient in a certain situation without getting into details. I can remember some people saying, look, we'll do something that will temporarily get us from here to here. It'll be easier to do that. And you said, you know, it might be a little more involved and harder to do right now, but it'll be the one and done and we won't have to come back. And that will change that person's life forever because it will be over. It's worth that upfront. That's what equity upfront for the benefits it's going to pay in the future for that person. It might be harder for me now. It might be even a little harder for them. But I think I have to think long term. Why would I do two or three operations when I can do one? Yeah, absolutely. And that applies to a lot of our congenital heart problems, that some of them, it comes across sometimes as being aggressive in treating a certain mm. pathology. But actually, when you look at the follow-up and the later results, this was the right approach. But 
you have to go through this initial period of pain mm. whether during the procedure or post-operative care and everything. But once you get through this, it will be much better down the road. So that's important also. And that also depends on the skills and the technical abilities and also the place. You know, you have to think about other mm. factors. You may be able to do it, but maybe not the right place to do it. You and know? that brings up my next thought of questions. We're looking, we're building on a legacy, a story. You're taking your journey, you're part of that, and it has to be part of what you're moving forward with. But what are some of the things that are interfering with that idea of continuing that philosophy of pediatric cardiothoracic surgery, of always thinking out of the box, moving forward, doing it? What are some of the things lately that you've noticed that interfere with that, being able to move that way? This is a great question. And, and I think the speciality that we deal with is a team approach. Means it's not only this decision of the cardiologist or the surgeon or anybody else. I mm -hmm. think this decision has to be made by all the key players in addition to the family. Mm -hmm. And in many situations, especially in children, you can have the same pathology and you make two different decisions because of the patients, they are different. And that's important to be considered. The first time operation versus number four or five. Right. Is it a younger child versus a teenager versus an infant? What's your ability in the post-operative care? You know, yes, I think I can get this patient through this, but I don't have a good support, for example, in an ICU. Will it be the right decision to do it? So I think this is a little bit more complicated and that's why this discussion has to happen between all the key players. Mm -hmm. And you have to look at your equipments and your technical abilities and your surgical skills, etc. Can I do this or not? Right, right. Yeah. And so you're tailoring it not only to the individual patient and you get to the point where I would say the things on the shelf, the tools and the options you have. It's like when you go somewhere, well, when we got one size, that's it. No, you're like, no, we're not there anymore. We've got a lot of different options and, and you're with your training, your experience, come with those. And we're going to talk about in the future and make more of those of your own. You know, you kind of contribute to, let's put some other things on that shelf. I want to have some of my stuff up there too for my legacy. But you're saying by having many different options and ways perhaps to approach a particular problem, a hole in the heart or a valve or something, you have to individualize that to that person, that patient to their family and to the institution or the place where they live or you're working, all these factors start to come in. It gets very much more complicated now in some ways than it may have been in the past. Very simple, there's two places doing this down here. This is what we do, take it or leave it. That's not yeah. like that anymore. Yeah, it, no, it's not. And also your team has to have some thinking out of the box, uh, right. open-minded discussion because we have a lot of challenging problems. And if you stuck with the attitude of, oh, we've never seen this before, we've never done this before, this is the way we do it, then you're not moving forward. Right. It's a culture of the institutions, too, that are able to support each other to kind of reach further and go outside the box. If that's the culture of that place, then you find that it's much easier to kind of spread out and try new things, whereas if the culture is much more restrictive than that, intellectually and otherwise. Absolutely. And I can tell you, and I was in different environments and I've seen different mentalities and different ways of handling these type of new problems, which requires somebody to think out of the box, outside the box. It's very important. And some will say they will just let you do it because there's no other option. Mm. And 
that sometimes it can be an easy decision, yeah. right? Because there's no other option. Right. But also there are some who will fight you not to do that with no evidence sometimes. Both environment have been there. And there are situations where I went to the family sometimes and tell them that I'm going to describe you the solution that we're thinking of, but I've never done it before. Mm. It might be almost breathtaking for people to hear that, but that's happened over and over and over again in your field. That's how the field moved forward. The, when Dr. Blaylock and everyone said, we're going to fix your baby's heart in Johns Hopkins back in the 1940s, he said exactly the same thing. It's been a- but also that's important because there are teams who are supportive. Right. And there are teams who will not be supportive or will say, I have concerns and I have doubts that this will work. But at the end, I think we all should learn from both scenarios. But I think you, you know. said something extremely important, which I always want to get back to in our discussions, which is you said, I go to the family. I went back to the patient because they're that biggest part of the team. Absolutely. And, and the patient now are the one who will make the decision or the parents are the right. one who make a decision. Now, this has to be with caution because sometimes we can confuse them yeah. by adding too much information or the way we present. That's my job is to unconfuse, <laughs> right? That's the pediatric cardiologist. Yeah. And, and that's very important. So I think that's the beauty of pediatric cardiac surgery also is every case we discuss among us as a team, and we all want to be comfortable with the decision that we make. And then we go to the family and we tell them we discussed it and everybody agree that we should do it this way. Mm. And that's, I think, very important. And that's what generate the confidence in the team and the confidence in their surgeon and their intervention cardiologist, etc. And also the family will trust that team when you tell them, well, this is how we discuss it and explain this to them. So you have all these wonderful legacies, you have this technology we'll talk about in a moment that does this and all the things that you can do now today that we couldn't do tomorrow and really the, the rapid growth over the past 10 years of that. And a lot of that is, as you said, tweaking or modifying what was done before and technology lets you do that. So tell us a little bit about the role of technology in terms of how it helps and, and sometimes gets in the way too. Yes, absolutely. So we have a lot of technology actually that's very good in the majority of what we do. And it facilitates really a lot of our work. So some of this technology help you preoperative to make the decision. And this is the way I'm thinking about right, it. Right. There's some technology that helps you to make the decision. Hmm. And there are some technologies that makes the operation safer. And there's some technology that make the operation easier as well. So for example, famous examples we see is when we see a complex congenital heart disease, we have now the ability to do 3D printing, a model for the heart, life size, and we actually see exactly what the pathology is. And mm. the 3D models in itself, it changes sometimes the decision. We've changed the decision based on this patient should go a single ventricle and now after the 3D model, we change into a two ventricle repair. It's totally mm. different future. So, which isn't, so you make a drastic change in the, not only the short term, but the long term approach of how you're going to, as heart's going to end up. Absolutely. By that decision based on technology that lets you essentially hold that heart in your hand, look at it in a different way and almost practice before you get to go in there. Absolutely. The surgeon now can do the operation no matter how complex it is before going and doing it in real mm. life which is huge because yeah. it saves time. 
improve outcomes and also has the ability to educate others, educate residents, fellows. Mm. Because that's, part, that's an important part. Yeah. Because in our field, it's very difficult to teach sometimes. It's very difficult to think about the time and you have to think about the risks that can happen. Moving from a 3D, now mm. you do virtual reality. You're inside the heart. You're moving it. You know exactly what you're going to do. And this is a huge difference. This was not in the past. This right. wasn't there. But now it's very easy. It's a routine. We can ask many centers. They have it. And they also help in explaining the complex procedure to the families. Right. You know, you yeah, show absolutely. them. This is, here, is, here is the actual heart. Picture says 10 million words at it, that point. It, right. it, exactly. And then you go to the operating room and then you have the technology that help you make the operation safer and make the operation more efficient as well through all the steps of the surgery. Right. Now people can watch what exactly you're doing. You know, I, I wear a person, I wear a camera all the time in all my cases and everybody can watch exactly what I'm doing as if they are scrubbed and seeing the operation. Yeah. That helps in teaching, education, helps the surgeon themselves also after the surgery. I watch these videos after I am done. So I know I should have done it this way. I should have mm. not spent time on this. So this is part of your self Not just the athletes doing this. This is <laughs> this the is athlete your... surgeon doing it too. Absolutely. And I think every surgeon should do that, especially yeah. if you're doing more complex stuff. Because that's how you evolve as a surgeon. Hmm. You learn it from your mistakes. That's fascinating because it's not just learning from a mentor or another person, but learning from yourself. And that fascinating use of technology to do that. You alluded to the fact that back years ago, for yourself and others, there was an element where you opened the chest and, oh, that's not what I expected. The technology didn't let you see it the way you're talking about now. And I've got to imagine that the ability to be able to operate and function in a situation where you don't have all the information and when you think you have all the information, is it a problem if somebody hasn't been in a situation where they find something and haven't practiced where they didn't expect that and all of a sudden they're like, I didn't expect that at all, now what do I do? Versus, oh, I've been in situations like that, I'm okay with that, it's not the best scenario, but I can still get this done. Do you think that that's a problem that technology sometimes prevents people from being able to deal with something at the moment that they didn't expect? I think uh, these scenarios, I mean, are very, very unusual right now to find a different diagnosis in the operating room. Mm. I think that also speaks about how good our imaging quality and cardiology assessment and evaluating the patients, et cetera, before reaching the operating room. So it's very, very unlikely these days to hear about you opened and you couldn't find what you're right, looking for. Right, right. And this is where experience now comes in action is we can still in some situations manage if you find something different than what we expect. But luckily these scenarios are not common now. Yeah, that's interesting because I do remember some of my surgeons basically saying, don't worry about that. I'll know what to do when I get there. I don't need you to give me every little detail. And today, to some degree, is it possible that some of the surgeons training saying, I won't go in until I get every single detail? I think the uh, answer is yes to the yeah. both sides and all depends on the experience. For example, an arterial switch, a transposition of great arteries, sure. we all make a big deal about the coronary imaging before the operation because... The tiniest little vessels in the heart, yeah. Exactly, because this is the critical part of the operation. This is what you will switch and what would make the difference in the outcomes if you switch them wrong or there is yeah. a mistake. So we all make a particular attention. We need another echo. We need to look again. We need that again. We can't see this. 
I think it's important, but in some of the experienced minds, I'm gonna fix it no matter what, right. because I've seen all the variations. But in some others will be, no, I'm not comfortable. I need to know what exactly the coronary, let's get the CT scan, let's do that. So that's the variations now between surgeons and the centers based on experience and how much you, you've seen. Right, and I think then that leads to my next thought. There seems to be that there was a kind of a spreading in the United States, at least. And your predecessor was from Vietnam at Westchester Medical Center. And he was doing the same kind of thing and, and seeing that the skills and the, and the abilities were spreading there. And I've seen it in Central America and other places, too, that have worked. But it gets to the point where you wonder, since thankfully children are not all that sick, you don't need that is it possible that we can spread out too much and not centralize? Is that a problem in the field where we can say, well, not every institution needs to have somebody who can do a complex heart surgery that actually is probably better if it is organized differently. We go to the point where we don't have enough people to the point, could we literally have them spread out too much? Can it go to the other extreme? The bottom line is the more you do, the more you get experience right. and you're more you'll be able to serve the patients better. Right. So there are some places were known by certain type of expertise and they do better and their outcomes are better than other places because they have more volume and they've seen all the pathology and right. they've seen all the complications. Now, that can be a double-edged sword because in some scenarios, yes, it's good, but you also need to provide this ability to other places so they can serve the patients you're not going to ask every patient to go to that particular center because you're not able to provide the service. And now it's the patient problem to travel and right. go there. I think that's a problem and that's something should not happen. Why we have certain centers who limit their experience to one or two scenarios and they don't want this to go out to other places. Right. Uh, that's, that's, that's not right. It's very possible that there is a future of this field, of this legacy, in which if it's straightforward, you could probably not travel too far to get that done for your family, your child, whatever. But if it's more complex, you might have to go a little further, but that makes sense because that place will be doing more and they'll be better at it. But if it's more simplistic, there's no reason that you couldn't get that done closer to home. Depends also on your center ability and willingness to build a program mm. and to invest in it. Are you want to have just an average program? We want to have a good program, really. Right. Are you can hire the right people to do that, train, they had the experience and all this. I think it's, it's important. And also it puts pressure on the team and the surgeon to continue to learn. You don't see everything in your fellowship or your training. And if you only do what you learned in your fellowship, you will be at 50% of what you should be. For your whole career. Yeah. And the idea that our learning curve explodes when we're done training is it true. And I tell all the students that you haven't started yet. Wait till you <laughs> see how much you learn when you're out there. Yeah. And if you had to give some advice to that next generation of surgeons that we're talking about, what would be some of the things you'd not warn them about, but give them a heads up on and some good wisdom that you would share with them? There is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, I advise everybody who wants to take cardiac surgery as a field or a career or especially pediatric cardiac surgery, don't take it unless you're passionate about it. Mm -hmm. Don't take it just because I want to be a cardiac surgeon because it's a difficult career. 
And especially if you want to be successful and you want to be a successful congenital heart surgeon, it's a years of training and years of experience after the training and a lot of learning as you go through. And that's not easy. It also takes a lot of your time. You're not going to have the ability to do everything as somebody who's not in that field. So you have to think about all this. So uh, first you have to be passionate about it. And then you take the chance and try to get a good training, a good education. So how would you do that? I'm sitting there and I'm in the position you were. And today somebody's coming out and they're saying, where do I start? How do I do this? Yeah, we have a system of training and you have to go through that. And sometimes you may finish the training and you're not satisfied with it. And that's unfortunately happened. You know, you're stuck in a program where you don't do a lot. You don't see a lot. Mm. And then you graduated and everybody is expected that you will be an independent surgeon. And that's not easy and doesn't happen to everybody. So your advice is find a place where you're going to be exposed to as much as possible. Absolutely. And that may not be easy in the current era with the limitations of how many programs you have and how many positions you have and the expectations. Uh, So you, you may be disappointed sometimes, but What makes a difference from someone and another is their persistence. So Mm -hmm. if you're in that field, you have to be persistent and you have to work to succeed. It may not work from the first time or second time, but it will always work at some point. And sort of the idea or the kind of falsehood that I'm done my training and now it's over my learning, that's nowhere near true in your field. It's like, okay, I didn't see this, but I can still go here and here and still keep advancing and I'm still learning. And so I can go beyond that. You have to. And there is a big part of that is the good opportunity that you may have by being in a good place, by training under good mentors. Yeah. But there is also the big effort part of that is, yes, I was unlucky, for example, I being in that place, but I'm going to change that. I'm going to go and do more training mm. and learn more. And I'm going to start to trying to find the job with a good mentor and then learn more. And at some point it will work out. But this is the variation that we see between different surgeons and different trainees. Part of it is personal effort and part of it, good opportunities, of course, but you may not have the good opportunities. So you have to initially increase your effort. Right. And so that going back to your own journey, that idea that, well, I came here on a kind of a non-official fellowship. But in retrospect, that was the most important time of your career, perhaps, because it said, I really do like this. There was no pressure on you at that point. There was no commitment. You could have turned around and said no, because you hadn't threw everything into the pot at that point. Yeah. And then because you did that and you looked around, you said, but now I'm willing to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And then doors open and people see that you're working hard, they help you, etc. But that duration can vary from somebody to another. And it could be short, it could be long. Don't give up in the middle. So that's why I started by saying, you have to be passionate about this. Expect long years of training and then pursue that training. You may have to do more than one training. And then when you start your job, you have to try to find a good mentor that will support you in the first few years because we all need support. Especially you don't have enough experience yet and your expectations now are high. So you cannot fail. And that's the thing that you have to tell yourself always. Mm -hmm. Like, I cannot fail. Yeah. No matter what. Right. You know, so don't give up. Keep thinking about it. And so don't put yourself in a position 
to be above your abilities to, to kind of create that failure. Absolutely. And yeah. don't get frustrated because there will be moments where you will be disappointed and moments where you will be frustrated and it's not working out, but you have to keep going. Yeah. And once you pass that stage and now you have hmm. the skills because you're doing all this to get the basic skills and then you need to apply this in the right place with the right mentorship and the right support. Right. And you build over the years through that and you can never achieve a balance in your work and your life because if I'm doing my speciality that I love, I'll spend more time in it. Mm -hmm. But guess what? I'm happy. So when I'm happy with this, I'll be happy also in my life. I've heard you say you integrate that, not balance it. Absolutely. You can't say I'm going to do this operation and I work only five hours and then the five other five hours I'll spend with my family or I'll go out with my friends. Yeah. It doesn't work this way. Yeah. Sometimes you have to be there for 20 hours, right. you know? So I think you have to integrate both. Obviously being happy at work will apply also this to your outside work, you know, life. And that's, that's what I try to do. Yeah. And it's a lot of lessons from just the field of medicine in general, that the reason you're doing all this and the reason the first people did all this was focused on servicing somebody else in need. And if that's always the compass that we're using, that's the water you feed off of. That's the well that nourishes you. If you keep going back to that, you'll keep finding that you're happy in your career and your life. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously part of this advice is you always have to continue learning and you have to teach others because we see a lot of surgeons who wants only them to be known for this type of procedure mm. or type of operations. And guess what? After they retire, nobody will remember them. No. So I think it's very important that we also teach others because yeah. these trainee and these residents are the ones who's going to be treating our kids. And that's how and the legacy us. works. Exactly. I mean, absolutely. And I think of the giants in your field and they never stopped learning. They became giants because even in their 40s and 50s and 60s, they kept going and trying to learn new things. Even at that point, they said, can I do this better? Can I do this better? And I think that's something that I see in your approach already. And you've decided to really focus in many ways on approaching surgery, not necessarily, as you said at the beginning of the discussion, from the middle of the chest, the sternotomy, but maybe even in other areas of the chest under the arm or there is maybe you could approach that way. Your predecessor at the institution decided to kind of change the way that bypass pump that you talked about works so we can use smaller children and just keep thinking out of the box. And and why is that so important as we finish up to pursuing this field? Why is it? So if you don't think outside the box, don't be a pediatric cardiac surgeon. Okay. (laughs) Cut and dry. (laughs) Because you will see a lot of challenging problems. And you don't always have the solution because you've seen it before. We see a lot of problems that we've not seen before. And over a lifetime, this could be the only case that you've seen. Mm. You have to think, you have to ask others. And that's what we do. We always, with other surgeons, have conversations. You know, we share experiences because nobody's seen everything. And part of this field is that you as a surgeon have to evolve, means If you continue doing the same thing over and over, yes, that's good, but you may not be the best. You want to always do something better. You always have to think how we can make it better. And some may say we've already have outcomes that's almost near 100% success. Why do we want to change and have a risk? 
because you want to always make it better. You want to make it more cosmetic, that's part. But now we realize there's more advantages rather than being just a cosmetic mm. approach. Right. Significant decrease in the length of stay, the return to activity. We came down now to the length of stay of less than 24 hours, for example, atrial septal defect mm. closure. Less than 48 hours for ventricular septal defect closure. So the kids are going home much faster, which was not part of the equation initially. Is not. And this cannot be reproduced by another approach. We discharge these kids on no restrictions. Hmm. I think in many ways, the idea for this pursuit of health that is the topic of what we're talking about in this podcast you've kind of simplified it again. And the answers are kind of always very interesting in that sense. It's kind of like you can always do it better than it's being done. I think so. That's part of the evolution and the progress. Even if there's a procedure that's already standard, the outcomes are excellent. Sometimes we don't think about it. We think about the problems that we still did not solve and the challenging scenario, but also these other things, we can make it better. How can we make it better? So you always have to evolve in your way of uh, addressing right so not only looking at what's been done before can make it better and looking can we do something that hasn't been done and do that at all and then then make it better but it's that constant push forward exactly to maybe it's just tweaking it maybe it's not that rapid advance that we had over the past 10 20 years but we keep doing that if once we stop doing that that's problematic and the era that we live in now, you can call the previous era as the era of developing new operations. Right. We rarely develop new operations now. Everything mm. is pretty much done. Mm. But this is the era that we're modifying these operations right. or modifying the approach to yep. make it better for the patients and their families. Mm. And so. so this has been very enjoyable. I hope people see the journey of our field a little bit through your eyes. I look forward to many years of working with you together and seeing that continued legacy. We do have a medical student with us, and I thought today it would be interesting to ask Jose here, just a third-year student, but we've had audiences on and off. And if you had any questions for Dr. Syed. We talked a lot about legacy today. What is the legacy you want to leave behind in retirement? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Obviously, I want to really focus on having good outcomes Patients are satisfied with the service I provided and see these over the years and also leave something for my residents, trainees, juniors, that they will always say, this guy taught us something. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So leave, leave the path. This is the way to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we enjoy sharing a moment of that path with you and in retrospect and looking forward. And we thank you because... The implications for healthcare in general are multiple, and I can definitely see that. So thank you for spending this time. It's been an honor. Uh, Thank you very much, Eric, and it was a pleasure. Thank you. Well, once again, this has been a wonderful discussion regarding a field in particular with implications for healthcare in general. And the idea of a legacy and constantly building on what came before and then moving forward and constantly advancing that, not being happy with the status quo. I think that's the lessons that Dr. Syed was trying to emphasize is that in order for healthcare to continue to be as exceptional as it can be and meet its full potential, we all have to work hard to keep pushing forward. And that means patients, physicians, and a whole team of people. 
It's a wonderful discussion and a wonderful premise to launch off of in all of our discussions, and hopefully you all appreciated this. I'm Dr. Eric Fetke, and I would like to hear your ideas about this and future episodes, and I can be reached at Dr. Fetke, MD on Facebook and Instagram. That's D-R-F-E-T-H-K-E-M-D, and on our website as well, drfetkemd.com. Until the next time, I wish you well as you make small movements forward in your life, forward, not backwards, so that everyone, if everyone did that, we can all be better in our pursuits.